no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World. We're back once again. Ralph, how are you? I'm good, Adam. How are you? I'm doing well. We're excited today to be joined by another faculty member at the University of Oklahoma, Ryan Beisel, who's an associate professor of organizational communication. See his PhD from Kansas, and his most recent book is titled Organizational Moral Learning, a Communication Approach. You got it. Yeah. We should, a, we, some Scrabble words right there. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I, I, I should probably explain that for people who aren't familiar with, like, okay, so we are speaking to you, Adam and I both work for the Gaylord College of Journalism and Mass Communication. Mm-hmm. Ryan is in the communication department. And for people who aren't familiar with academia, Communication can be divided up in a number of different weird ways, depending on what institution you're at. So you just have to ask people, oh, really? You know, Because here, like for studying film, we do some, and then there's a film and media studies area, and then there are film production people and fine arts. So it just gets divided in different ways. And, and I think, I don't know what your experience with that is, but I think it's partially the general disrespect with which communication is held by the rest of academia. Yeah, very often. Yeah, yeah. And kind of the weird politics of it all, mm-hmm. but but there's a lot of overlap actually. A lot, yeah. uh, not duplication. Mm-hmm. You guys have a nicer building, though. That's what I'm jealous about. Yeah, oh, do you think so? Oh, See, this I, is, empirically, right, it's yeah. definitely a nicer <laughs> building. Have you ever heard of the term "golden handcuffs"? <laughs> yes, uh, or "golden wagon," uh, as the case may be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've well, anyway, we'll, we'll we'll talk about the statue at some point in the future. Because it's an interesting thing to talk about. Yeah, no, but we, we see the same thing in advertising and PR. I mean, you know, we have advertising and we have marketing in the the College of Business, and then we yeah. have communications and in arts and sciences. It's all sort of fragmented right. across the institution. And it's not. It, I mean, it's not completely irrational in most cases. In fact, trying to rectify that can sometimes be very destructive because the problem is that different kinds of cultures develop in different. Mm-hmm configurations and and academics are a really badly behaved lot mm-hmm, they're just they not there there's a mix of hard like, to control hard to are. control mm-hmm. um they usually have to work with lots of other people especially young people so you know a good portion of them are actually pretty good socially mm-hmm. but amongst each other oh, man it's nasty mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, but we're going to today because you're you're joining us at a uh, at a fortunate time because we're going to be talking about some things that uh, may be of practical value for any of us in mm-hmm. our day-to-day lives. And locally, it's finals week, and right. so it's appropriate, I think, to talk about learning on finals week. Yeah, I think that's I think that's completely appropriate. And mm-hmm. the, so, um, let's what so what's your tell us a little bit about your background. What was your graduate work in? Where did you go? Yes, yeah, I was one of those people who um, settled on my topic pretty early. I have my undergraduate degree in organizational communication, and uh, I went and worked for a little while. Um, knowing that someday I wanted to be a teacher at the college level, knowing that I would have to go back and do uh, graduate work at some point. So so when somebody says to you, what is organizational communication? Yes. Yeah. Well, in, you know, the Cliff's notes is it's the study of communicating within organizational contexts. Yeah. Okay. In the workplace. And, uh, you know, anytime I tell people uh, what I study and uh, what I teach, 
almost always do they tell me, wow, have I got a story for you? <laughs> because, because everybody has that story of the difficult uh, coworker or of the, the boss who said something that they couldn't believe and that kind of thing. And so, yeah, I hear a lot of great stories. And I've become people's therapists really quickly, I feel like. They, they, they just need to tell me these stories <laughs> and burden me with them also. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So you feel this karmic weight. You're beginning to I, sink. I do, yes. You're, you're, you're sinking through the, through, mm-hmm. through the clouds back to Earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Well, you wouldn't know it um, from if you've listened to the podcast, but Adam and I actually hate each other. We don't get along. <laughs> There's a lot of fighting. And in fact, I may tell you a story about Adam. Oh, I'd like that, yes. About how horrible he is. And then he'll have another story. And, and, and then can, he can tell me. Right, one on right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then you can sort of like set us further against yeah. each other. This is actually just therapy on a microphone. <laughs> this is actually required by our therapist that we, right. that we publicly record all of our conversations. Do you remember talk- how's that working for you? Oh, uh, yeah. Do you remember talk radio? Do you remember the movie talk radio? It was based on no. an Eric Bogosian monologue, actually. It's a great film. Um, and it's about a, a talk, basically a, a, a kind of a talk radio person who's doing kind of on the air therapeutic stuff, but in a really aggressive, nasty way. Uh, it's a very cool film. So, gosh, I'm spending a lot of time. We watched Die Hard last night, so we're sinking into a the A true 80s. Christmas film. A true Christmas film, right, mm-hmm. exactly. Beginning to end. That's right. I forgot the whole thing is stuffed full of Christmas. That's right. So, yeah. You know, I, I've, I've heard that there's two people, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who know that Die Hard is a Christmas movie and everyone else. <laughs> well, what's really great is now there's lots of T-shirts for sale that say Nakatomi Christmas Party, which is the building that the company that uh, Bruce Willis gets his his poor little New York policeman's person caught up in. Um, so it was, uh, it was quite an experience, though. It was nice to go back and and it and it holds up pretty well, all things considered. And I'm not I'm not normally tolerant of like real mainstream dumb stuff, but I'm I'm telling you that in 20 years, Rampage with uh, uh, Rock the Dwayne Johnson mm-hmm. is going to hold up because it's an awesome movie. So put that on your list okay. of, of things to watch. It's got a giant monkey. It's got a giant wolf. It's got a giant alligator. And it's got Dwayne the Rock Johnson. What could go what wrong? Could, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so on a more serious note. Oh. <laughs> so, so what did you? What, what was your dissertation about, if I could ask? Oh, wow. My dissertation was about this uh, very obscure theory. So I don't know if we want to talk about that too much called uh, Communication Constitutes Organizing Theory. And it was a, it was a series of psycholinguistic experiments in which I had two people um, – work on a very elaborate administrative form together and I recorded their interaction and encoded it for all uh, all kinds of different things and in the end one, one of the things I found out was um, when two people are working together um, on something really sophisticated the more turns they take the more accurate they'll be mm-hmm. um, it's one of those kind of uh, oh yeah I see it's a real base uh, kind of observation that um, when people uh, they ask questions and they answer those questions in thoughtful ways Lots of times, why they they become uh, increasingly um, better at working to coordinating their activities and there, working together. It reminds yeah. me of an argument that Sunstein makes in uh, Infotopia, where he says that basically, when you have a group of people who are working together, mm. the average always skews up because they are all benefiting from the collective, you know, the collective attraction of actually doing better work, mm-hmm. which which I thought was a really interesting way to think about. Yeah. 
you know, providing everybody's being polite. Academics can never do that, but, <laughs> yeah. but if everybody's being nice about it. I'd be curious to hear about how do you, so how do you integrate the theory of organizational behavior into organizational behavior courses? So I, mm-hmm. I, I imagine that, you know, do you end up um, assigning a lot of more group work than, than, than probably one would imagine in, in a traditional lecture class? Yeah. Or is that, is that, does, does the, the theory sort of feed the pedagogy? Yeah, hopefully. Uh, if I'm, yeah, I, th- I think so. So um, it's not unusual in my small group communication classes where, uh, of course, they're assigned in small groups. Um, I often joke that it, as an undergraduate, I took small group communication independent study. <laughs> I don't think you're supposed to be able to do that. And uh, so I'm very committed. Yeah, let's keep I, I, I did it online. There you go. <laughs> so it was, it was me and Hal going back and forth. Yeah, that's good. So I'm committed. I get them into groups and uh, I leave them there. I think that's an important part, mm. you know, because really uh, if we only if we're a one project and done kind of group uh, we don't necessarily have to hold each other accountable and be honest and yeah. say the things we need to say so yeah I, I do I, I sure hope that <clears throat> certainly I do my bit of lecturing uh, <laughs> I think we all kind of need to do that at some point um, but I try to mix it up yeah good mm-hmm. I think that's that sounds good so one of the things I was interested in focusing on is something I know you've been working on for quite a few years now um, which is the the all of the stuff that surrounds growth mindset, and um, <clears throat> I I find the concept really engaging and interesting because of what it offers people in their day to day lives. Everything from there to really complex organizations like classrooms and things like that. So, could you talk about sort mm-hmm. of how you came across growth mindset and mm-hmm. um, where, wh- how you sure. got started working in it? Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Should we? Uh, I'll, I'll describe growth mindset mm-hmm. just a little bit. So, growth mindset is the is the notion that we all have beliefs about how learning works, and those beliefs shape our actual learning. Um, and that's up to me that already is just a powerful notion that our our beliefs shape something so tangible as how skillful we can become or we tend to become that kind of thing and so growth mindset is is the idea that a lot of us um we tend to either believe uh that uh, a skill can be worked on and improved or we believe oh you're just born with that that's a fixed mindset you're just born with that skill or not and so it turns out that uh, the, the greater people believe that uh, skills can continue to be developed across a lifespan, the more likely they will be to persist in the face of academic setbacks. And they just keep going. They just keep going. And so they, they tend to be people who will acquire greater mastery over their lives. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a life-giving truth. And I love to talk about it with students and, and uh, help them because it's, you know, I can remember being there. Uh, I'm kind of a recovering fixed mindsetter. <laughs> and, and I was well into graduate to your question, I was well into graduate school before I started to learn the real science uh, mm-hmm. of neuroplasticity, of how learning works. And uh, it, it starts to dawn on me that I had been avoiding math because I, I was the one who said, you know, I'm not a math person. I'm going to stay away from that. And wouldn't you know it, if you don't take math classes, it turns out you don't get better. <laughs> you know, tr- true story. Just so, a thing. Yeah. Yeah. so then I, I was actually kind of irritated when I first really started learning this research and seeing it before my eyes. I was irritated because I was like, oh, no, now I have ownership. And I, I have to like, if I think math is important, I have to go invest in that. Mm-hmm. And I did. And, you know. Um, uh, three semesters later, I was taking very uh, complex statistical uh, classes that I needed for my PhD and so forth. Very uh, pleased to have, have done that kind of thing. 
Um, and it, and it, it proves, it showed me firsthand how mm-hmm. important that is. Yeah, yeah. we learn, and, and some of those fixed mindset ideas, we learn when we are so young. So by well-meaning people yeah. often, very right. well-intentioned. And, and you know, uh, there's a cage that can happen uh, is uh, when parents are, aren't you so smart? Aren't you so smart? Right. And some, some kids who maybe are, are excelling early are just uh, actually caged by this. And eventually, if they're going to achieve mastery in anything, in anything, they'll come across some huge challenges and they may say, oh, now it got hard. Therefore, this is as far as I should go. Let's, you know, pack mm-hmm. it up. Yeah, I always think also about how some of our understandings of ourselves as as particularly as uh, boys and girls mm-hmm. are kind of formed. So you get this kind of, again, this kind of fixed mindset about what kind of characteristics are connected with what gender. Mm-hmm. Um, and even, you know, there was, I, I, I have to dig this book up again. It was a book I read a long, long time ago that was actually a contrast of infant raising in three completely different cultures. And it was an American and a Japanese and an African context. I don't remember which African context country it was but it was interesting how all of in in the same way as you know gender becomes a fixed mindset because of how it gets reinforced over and over mm-hmm. and over again um, but these contrasting differences like how you set up the amount of independence that an infant has or that you know a growing child has um, is implicit in all of that communication so are they free can they move are they what happens when the baby cries do you ignore it and in America we're like you know a little too German so you're supposed to let them cry because it's good for them <laughs> you know whereas like being in incredibly intent uh, attentive um, in Japanese culture the way this book was laying it out was part of it although in Japanese culture at a particular point then it stops and it's like you're done being a child and <laughs> and everything becomes now you know you need to be part of the group you need to work and cooperate with everyone so I mean a lot of those kind of like fixed mindset ideas are part of how people are raised in a culture yeah yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I as a parent of two, it's so difficult to not try to compare and contrast my you know my my children as if uh, it's all nature and not nurture. You know, or, or they're just there's two separate people. And I as a I remember specifically as a kid having you know my younger brother and several people would say. Uh, you know, he's more like this parent and you're like the other parent and trying so hard to resist that kind of, uh, you know, that like taking that in, not because I, I didn't like that, you know, but because I, I see myself as a healthy mix of both. And, you know, I didn't, I don't want to be labeled as more like one or the other as well. So, mm-hmm. and then I, of course now I do it to my kids. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> I find myself look, doing the same look, thing, yeah, knowing look, what I know. Right, and, right. And labels are powerful. We're all, we're all, um, you know, we want to know who am I? And we were so attuned to those labels. Of, yeah, and those... I mean, we're seeing now a market around understanding identity through, you know, the 23andMe genetic test and all the things mm-hmm. that people yeah. are, are, are the, you know, the links that they'll go to to understand anything more, you know, have a little bit more insight about themselves, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's just, it's, it's like, I think, a, a very complex thing. But you're, I mean, so part of the way I think that this idea is kind of useful is that it's something that parents do. And to become aware of that can be really empowering. Because you can realize how you're either helping or hurting, Mm -hmm. you know. uh, Mm -hmm. And so very practically, some of the things that uh, um, this research tells us that we should be focused on is focus on what can the child, what can the child control? Um, uh, See how you worked on that. See how hard you worked on that. See see how how attuned uh, you were to the teacher. Um, the kinds of things that the child can control is something they should be very proud of and something we should be quick to point out. And they, there's a, if to think of oneself as a hard worker is a really useful kind of label 
uh, over, yeah. over the long haul, that's going to really pay great dividends. Whereas uh, sometimes, you know, the, oh, aren't you smart or you aren't going to be good at that. Those are self-fulfilling prophecies in a way that can be dangerous. Um, and, and especially the smart la label, uh, people are really surprised at how potentially damaging it can be to hear you're so smart, you're so smart, you're so smart. When later on, eventually, if somebody's going to ever achieve mastery, they're going to come across something tough mm -hmm. and that they, they may misunderstand at that point. Yeah. Um, so this would be something in this time of year when you're around family because I think that you know all of these like family collective holidays should be racked with like you know intense criticism of all the people that are around you so listening for because you my family's working perfectly <laughs> <laughs> but you hear I mean you hear people say these things to their children and you're just like Oh my! Don't not don't say that. Mm -hmm. You know. Oh well, you know he's not very good at whatever, and it's just like just don't even say that mm -hmm. because you're you know you're reinforcing mm -hmm. those sorts of ideas, and it, it then becomes complicated to mm -hmm. undo it. So um, a couple of terms that I think are are kind of mixed in this. So so the idea of a growth mindset is then you basically turn the I can't do it into I can. It, well, it, uh, maybe let me add to that. Maybe not. Um, I can. It's a, I can't yet. Ah, I'll, okay. I'll add the word yet. Mm -hmm. And so in which you really start thinking of yourself as a work in progress. Mm -hmm. And uh, that takes a lot of the sting, I think, out of, uh, sure, it's a challenge where I, I can't do it. You add the word yet, and that's it opens up kind of a, a storyline for your future that uh -huh. says, um, we can't predict the future. We just can't predict it. So get on with the work of getting better today. Right. Yeah. yeah. And the yet idea. I mean, I think what's interesting about that, that that has been kind of, I think, a revolution over the past. I don't know. You'd probably know the time frame better. But the idea that yet is something that is your whole life. Mm -hmm. It's not yet doesn't stop when you're nine or 12 yes. or 21 or something like that. And I think that can be such an encouraging thing to hear the people that we looked up, up to as being very masterful at whatever they do. If they're willing to say, yeah, I worked really hard at this, worked a really long time at this, I'm, I feel good at it, but I'm learning new things still. Mm -hmm. um, that's something I try to do as a professor. I try to um, point out those things that I don't know to my students or the most recent thing I learned. Um, that's you know I think it's a powerful thing for people to hear. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm a work in progress still. Right. It's always yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that could be. Now there's a couple of ideas that are kind of tied in that I think are really interesting that I'd like to because one of them that's kind of directly connected is the notion of neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. It's a great word. Isn't that great? Yeah. yeah. It's, it just sounds smarter. Just, saying it sounds like <laughs> a cool thing that there should be lots of movies about. And there's some there's some good documentaries about uh, there's some really good stuff from uh, David Eagleman about neuroplasticity and his series on the brain. But can you define neuroplasticity mm -hmm. and talk about how what does it mean to us? How does it yeah, so it it means that the brain is changeable. It's uh, changeable across the lifespan and continues to. Um, the 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 metaphor that the mind is a muscle, the brain is a muscle is. It is a metaphor, but there's also a sense in which it's quite literal. There's these great studies. Uh, one, one of the most famous ones that most people point to is a study of London taxicab drivers. I love this. And so uh, London, it was, you know, it's a very old town and it certainly isn't laid out on a grid. You know, think spaghetti bowl. And there you, that's a map of London. And uh, when taxi cab drivers actually study that, they, it, it takes a long time, six to eight months. Some really uh, enterprising brain scientists uh, were... Uh, this, is, this is what they, what they call the knowledge. The knowledge. The knowledge, right? Yes, Isn't that's that, right. In that's what the London. cab drivers call 
you know, so mm-hmm. that when somebody barks out a location, they can get you there. Yeah, yeah amazing, uh, really amazing skill set. And so, um, some brain scientists did some random assignment, and what they did is before people who are just about to start studying for it, they uh, measured a location, uh, a region in the brain that's uh, associated with spatial reasoning. And uh, so these folks studied six to eight months, and uh, they uh, did some brain imaging again and could see measurably measurable structural changes in this location of the brain. And uh, it's a wonderful example of neuroplasticity. And, and these weren't nine-year-olds. These are That's a great point. <laughs> yes. In fact, you know, we're talking mid-20s, mm-hmm. mid-30s uh, kind of folks, working adults, mm-hmm. who in, a, in the course of half a year were able to literally change a part of their brain. Yeah. Uh, and incredible. It would have been interesting. Interesting. I think if we now again, these are the the experiments because you don't know the future yet. Mm-hmm. But it would have been interesting to look at sort of like average brain activity before the digital revolution compared to average brain activity now, mm-hmm. and how the different regions of the brain react differently based on what our day in day out activities are like. You know, mm-hmm. how much time we spend online, how much time we spend um, doing things differently than we did before mm-hmm. we had the laptop in front of me and the phone yeah. in my pocket. And uh, and a, a great point. I'm so curious about that. I think it also speaks to this notion that in some ways we're all training our brains all the time. You may, we may well be training it to be more of a couch potato brain. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? In a, in a sense, there's, it, there's no such thing as an absence of training. Mm-hmm. Uh, training doesn't have to be positive. It doesn't have to be healthy. It doesn't have to be good. We're always becoming in this sort of notion. Well, well yeah. but I have, to, I have to say, I would argue that there are aspects of couch potato brain development <laughs> that are extremely important because if you're, it becomes all, uh, to me anyway, and again, this is a lot of what I do in classrooms, right, is it's always a question of, you know, what is it you're asking of the things that you're consuming? when you're in your potato-like position. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're saying, uh, if I'm watching Die Hard, as we mentioned earlier, and I'm saying, entertain me, show me violence, show me cool, and I'll just go along for the ride, you know, it's a little different than if you go in saying, hmm, what does all this say about politics and police mm-hmm. officers and responses between police and the FBI, the culture we live in, you know, uh, or, or as, you know, because uh, I was watching with my daughter and her comments were about, Wow, that's some '80s hair. Because there's a lot of really good '80s hair. In there. <laughs> yeah. So you know, but but all shoulder of that, pads, right? Shoulder pads, <laughs> yeah. and '80s hair, and and artificial fabrics and things like that. And uh, yeah, and this like synergy between Japanese and American culture that I think has changed a lot over time. But it's interesting because it depends on then what questions you ask as you're interacting, and that helps. I think that uh, in terms of plasticity, how that mm-hmm. changes, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, some of my interest has to do with um, attention. And I'm how sorry, what? attention. I'm sorry, I just forgot. Oh, <laughs> I see what you did yeah, there. I know. That <laughs> was it. Was that clever? Was yeah, that clever? That was... It's yeah. like I have a short attention span. Yep. <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> That's just it. And I, I've been telling my students that I really believe people who are, who are able to um, have significant attention spans and invest in that art. It's going to be a commodity. Employers are going to want to pay yeah. for this. It's going to be yeah. so rare to be able to stay on point and stay focused for a significant amount of time and, you know, a neat, a neat ability. Yeah. That, that's a really interesting thing to think about is how do you, how, how are people going to start to quantify what it means to have attention span? Mm-hmm. Because I think that is a really interesting point that, that that's something you can't really <clears throat> well, they're not asking right now in HR, you know, what your attention span is, but <laughs> yeah. you can imagine in five to 10 years, that, that's a question people are going to want to know. And how do you, how do you test for that? Mm-hmm. It's also really not, I mean, part of the, part of the, what's cool in connection with neuroplasticity is it's not one thing. I mean, there's things that and we've talked about this before a little bit. Are you a gamer? 
at all, Ryan? Not much. See, I'm, I'm not at okay, all. Okay, yeah. Yeah, none of us are. Yeah, so this is, so those of you who are perfect. gamers, though, the way your attention span works is so <clears throat> alien and so kind of amazing mm -hmm. you know the the ability to stay on task for that length of time to you know I've, i i watched some young cousins do this thing where they were they were basically so it was uh, a, a nephew and his friend and they were the, the friend wasn't there they were talking on a headset over it and they were just doing this thing where they would jump from behind the wall and then get shot to pieces and then fall back and then the other one would jump out and get shot up and what they were doing was just building up experience points right so that their characters were worth more as they died many 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 times so and and they were just doing this this went on for like a half hour <laughs> and i i was just it was it was intriguing to watch I, there's no way i could do that i just don't have the so i think attention span changes a lot based on mm -hmm. you know what the activity is mm -hmm. right and interest yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean I, well i don't game i feel like we, I, we all probably have that thing in which like time feels like it gets lost you know and for mm -hmm. me that's always been like music yeah i can just mm -hmm. i can just tinker around with playing something and then all of a sudden like an hour goes by in the same way i imagine it yeah. does for gamers yeah. in, in music is really interesting because some forms of it are so intentionally repetitious and build on such kind of tiny little changes and uh, for me because i spent a lot of time it was kind of when i grew up that there was all this music that was being produced by these minimalists who were basically doing things that were just really i mean you know um, 20 minute now 40 minute or hour long very repetitious pieces of music and you go wow i can you know <laughs> like a three minute pop song is like a blink by comparison so it's it's interesting you know again sort of like what you what you allow yourself to do and what you think you can do then changes how you think about those things so um the other term that i wanted to talk about a little bit is metacognition because i mm. love that term too it's got That's a, a great it's got a lot of a lot of weight to it so could you talk about metacognition for a sure. little bit so metacognition is um thinking about thinking uh quite quite directly it's thinking about thinking and it turns out that uh when we take a moment and check in with the quality of our thinking it can improve our attention it can improve our uh, ability to move um, new information from our short-term memory to our long-term memory so yeah yeah and it, uh, as a communication scholar uh, I, cer I certainly like it's it's a cousin term meta communication or talk right. talk about talk and and you can um, really help people out sometimes when you talk about the quality of their communication to them or you uh, say hey what is it how is the conversation flowing right now um, yeah these are these are uh, it's a good opportunity, I think, especially in the educational setting in which we find ourselves, that um, getting students to clue in a little bit more to uh, what it is their minds are doing as they're learning, uh, it can be really, really helpful um, to, to the long-term experience of acquiring new information we, as a student. It, it's kind of interesting because of the amount of stimuli we're consuming all the time. There's a really, for me anyway, and again, I'm, I'm older, but, but there's still this... Uh, there, there are definitely benefits from becoming very conscious of what you're doing and how you're doing it, but it's but it really takes an effort. You know, it really takes going. Wait, stop. I need to think about this differently, right? I need to, or I need to think about what mm -hmm. I'm thinking about and how I'm thinking about it, which seems kind of navel gazing, I'm sure, to people who. But, but, but the, but I mean, I would think the benefits from that are pretty substantial. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And we see that uh, um, a good uh, conversation between, let's say, spouses about how we're communicating can be very 
rich if if well um, if well executed. It could be really helpful. Um, just as with students, as they're engaging and hopefully they're engaging their minds, we can talk to them about, hey, how is that experience going for you? What are some ways to optimize that while you're at it? So we're not we're actually we're awake to this moment. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing about being asleep is you don't know that you're asleep. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and metacognition is partially about trying to wake up a little bit and mm-hmm. uh, do life with a higher quality, mm-hmm. um, more m- uh, mindful, more intentional as we move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you done much with mindfulness? Uh, not a whole lot, but I certainly do like it. Uh, mm-hmm. As so, um, it, my being focused on organizations, I think mindfulness is is a wonderful concept in the organization setting, because the thing about organizations is they rely on routine. That mm-hmm. organizations are amazing at developing routines and habits. The trouble with those routines is they can become over reliance on routine, and it can create all kind of mindlessness, which is. The source of so many Dilbert cartoons, right? right? You know, how, how is it that these things go on? Any thinking person, awake person would know that is a silly outcropping of the workplace. How does that happen? Well, it happens because of our mindlessness, our over-reliance on routine, mm-hmm. which so often happens. And so um, sometimes to improve workplace functioning, it is a matter of let's wake up a little bit. Let's become more, uh, let's, we're, let's realize where we're over-relying on that routine. Mm-hmm. So, so do you think that, I'm, I'm just kind of curious how you think about the relationship between a concept like that inside an organization and then kind of the information technologies that we use all the time to communicate with each other. And, you know, and ultimately at the very far end of that, I'm thinking of Turing test ideas mm. about whether when you're interacting with something online, whether you know it's a person or, you know, how you think about that. Um, yes, I... I'm, I, maybe I'm curious about what you all think of this. My sort of initial thought is uh, information overload is probably going to encourage us to retreat all the more into an over-reliance on routines. That's my hunch, but I don't know that I have a, a clear answer on that. What, what, do mm-hmm. you, what do you all think? I don't know. I, it's, I, I think it's complicated. No, I, I, was, I, I, <laughs> I was actually, I have to say, it was very, uh, the, the Nicholas Carr book, uh, Shallow, The Shallows, um, which unfortunately in my mind now is a song from Star is Born uh, because it gets played in our house a lot. But, uh, but, but his, his notion in the shallows that, um, and he talks about neuroplasticity, that was kind of where I was first, was able to wrap my head around the idea, that the things that we do in conjunction with these technologies change the way, change the patterns our brains use. And the main argument he's making is that it encourages us to do this kind of, and the way I think about it is this horizontal surface thing, right? Literally, you know, surfing the internet is trying to stay above the surface of it so you don't get sucked into an idea. Mm. And, and, and the implication is all of that's negative. And so then we end up in a culture where we're actually spending a lot of time and energy on to drill down into a particular idea and understand all of its meanings and its history and everything else is it, sort of like pulling in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. So so that's the, the question to me, and again, as a person who's a big fan of media literacy, is how do you try to make sure there's balance in all of those things? So that's that's the way I think about it, is you know just trying to make sure that when I have to, I can make myself not stay at the surface. Yeah, and that, to me, this also speaks to sustained attention and the value of having sustained attention at times, uh, so you can dig deeply. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I the thing that's kind of coming to my head is just. Um, we live in a world where everything can like be drilled into by metrics. Uh, and so particularly what I've seen with myself is um, like, for instance, I 
love running. I hate running on a treadmill because I have all the metrics of how I'm doing it. <clears throat> all the, you know, all, all, all of the, my pace, how long I've been doing it when I'm, you know, I, when I, and then I'm doing all the calculations, in my brain, I've got to run for approximately 12 more minutes, you know, and if I go a little faster, I can get it down to 10 or whatever it is. Uh, which, which basically my point being is that I never really, to your point, Ralph, get below the surface on it. And I'm just like trying to, you know, trying to get as quick to the, the finish line as possible. Uh, and same thing with like a Kindle that tells me that I'm, you know, I'm 10% through a book or, uh, three and a half hours from the end of it or whatever it is. <clears throat> yeah. I, I've got this new thing that's telling me how much screen time that yeah, I, yeah. and it, I don't like it. Uh, yeah. I, well, I don't, I don't either. <laughs> it's judging me. Right, that's right. Exactly. Right. My phone's gotten very judgy. <laughs> yeah. So, so I've found myself retreating from technologies that do that just so I don't have that information at top of mind at all times. Mm-hmm. You know, it's three and a half hours till I finish the book. Now it's three hours, 20 minutes, you know, like yeah. that just eliminate that, that, that type of, um, you know, interface from me. So I, you know, I'm buying more physical books. I'm, mm. you know, running trails instead of, you know, I'm looking at my watch while I'm running the whole time, you know, just trying to stay away from, from the, the way that, uh, you know, analytics can start to run our, uh, our hobbies. Yeah. It's, and, and you know, it's kind of funny. I was just reading about, uh, you know, what the, the sort of like, um, and we wouldn't exactly be confirmation bias, but how things like Yelp and um, Rotten Tomatoes and things like that yeah. affect our decision making. Because, you know, you, you go to some place, you have a horrible meal, and then you go on Yelp and everybody's like, oh, this and it's just like, nope, this is not, you know. And, of course, then that motivates you to add your little dis into the into the list of what goes on. But then, like, the, the, the we've talked about this before a little bit, too, the significance of a Rotten Tomatoes number. You want to go see that? It's only got a 39 you know, I mean, yuck, you know. <laughs> so there's all kinds of social pressures that tie into mm-hmm, that, too, yeah. I would imagine. I wanted to ask a little bit about your book, Organizational Moral Learning, because I think that's an interesting – I had never heard that term moral learning before. I mean, you know, we you know, often refer to it within, yeah, as ethics a little bit more, and I think it's, it's likely intentional to go with the word moral in that. Can you kind of explain what that concept exactly is? Sure, yeah, I'd love to. Um the 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 title of the book, the organizational moral learning, yes, yeah, like three words that don't belong together, and I totally get that. You know, um, uh, it's it's sort of like the Holy Roman Empire, neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. <laughs> um, and you know, so that that's that's uh, it, it. Certainly is intentional. Now, there's there's a whole branch of psychology called moral psychology. It's been going on since the turn of the century, and um, when we started being able to look inside of brains, it really changed our understanding. Of how moral decision making works. It used to be that we thought that uh, uh, children were born blank slate, just totally, you know, into the um, buzzing, blooming confusion. You know, had no ideas, and over the over time, their culture basically taught them what was ethical or not. Now, this is being really disrupted. Um, that that story has been really disrupted with some very clever experiment, experiments with children, as well as uh, with some uh, uh, brain imaging of, of folks who have certain brain lesions. Now, let me tell you about one of the studies with kids, because I think this kind of clarifies why I went with that word moral. There's a great study in 2007 in which they uh, some researchers took preverbal infants, 6, 8, and 10-month-olds. They, these the, these babies can't talk yet, right? And they put on these uh, very simple puppet shows, these puppet shows, and it's randomly assigned, of course, uh, in which one puppet either helps the other um, up a uh, up a up a hill, 
or um, one puppet will hinder the other in, in its attempt to get up the hill. And then they will uh, give these pre-verbal infants a chance to hold one of the puppets. And they'll also track eye gaze and so forth. And you can demonstrate statistically that these babies make very reliable uh, ethical judgments in that they uh, very much prefer helper puppets and very much avoid hinderer puppets, mm. which is just a fascinating notion. And, and frankly, it's it's in baby's best interest to be able to figure out pretty quickly who to trust. Yeah. And uh, and so those kinds of recogn- recognitions, uh, you know, the, the brain is the technical way to say it is organized in advance of experience. Mm-hmm. The same way that we're ready to um, acquire language. Mm-hmm. Babies can acquire language uh, very quickly. It's just amazing how complex our language is and they do it. Ethical judgment seems to be much the same way. We're organized in advance of experience. These brains are incredible. They come. There's some sense in which they come ready to have intuitions about what is right and wrong. And so for me, that observation, I put that against this fact that, you know, most every self-respecting organization has ethics training, right? Uh, you, you have to go through the, we do our IRB training and there's all kinds of, you know. Sexual harassment, sexual, fire extinguisher. There you go, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, really, can we think about what we're doing here? We're taking adults and we're telling them stealing's wrong. Mm-hmm. Is, it that, is it really that they don't know <laughs> Stealing is wrong, and, and and so if we if we look all the way back upstream, and we say certainly um, children know, and uh, so what's going on in the in between from the free verbal baby who knows right from wrong, and and the fact that we're taking working adults and having to remind them that stealing is wrong, so uh, that's kind of the impetus of of where I started this idea that uh, maybe we shouldn't be it's not an issue of knowing better is doing better because you already know. It's that you're not doing. Yeah. Uh, how do we improve a sort of system in which we're ready to use the intuition of people around us that say, hey, th- these things are right and things are wrong? How do we use that and make a culture, make good decision making, uh, make a place where we can be forthcoming with those kinds of conversations? That's uh, what it's about. I'm, is it, oh, sorry. It's, re- it's really interesting because I feel like those types of trainings, maybe we talked about this before, I don't know, but they, they don't exist to tell you that something's right or wrong. They exist to legally cover an organization. Exactly. You know, like, like in, the event, in, in, right. in the event that something happens, they can say, well, we put this training in front of them. So clearly, you know, they should be knowledgeable of it. Exactly. And so the, the 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 idea of even question you know questioning that an organization has the ability to tell someone what is right and what's wrong you know feels like a, a like a, a diff, you know a uh, unorthodox type of organization. Absolute absolute violation. So there's there's this great ethnography that um, I talk about in the book, and it's it's an ethnography. Uh, it's an observation of one of these trainings of Denver City um, ethics, the whole municipality. Some some of the politicians wouldn't you know it were found to be corrupt and what happens everybody has to take ethics training now so in one of these trainings they were training these police officers and they're training them on you know what is right and wrong utilitarian ethics and yada 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 okay well these cops apparently at some point break away and they say you know what i really want to know is what do i do late at night uh when i'm on my shift and i'm out eating and somebody tries to pay for my meal hmm well, so what's amazing is they, they start discussing this in really authentic ways. Okay, here's what you can do. Meanwhile, the person putting on the training session goes over and apologizes to the researcher that they, quote, got off topic. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And that, that's precisely the, the, the moment that we need to capture where we can really talk about us here in our work 
let's try to do the right thing and let's put our heads together and and, and have it. that to me that's organizational moral learning that's probably the thing we should be focused on way more than the powerpoint that teaches utilitarian ethics or whatever mm-hmm. the case may be yeah there i think there's a, there's a very strange way we haven't in, in you know because sometimes you get impressed with the sophistication of our culture and other times you go you know we haven't really thought through what's the relationship between being social and being individual in terms of things like moral development or in terms of things like uh, i was just doing some reading recently where it was talking about how um, essentially because we are more social than we are rational that rational serves a purpose to become more social sort of as a uh, you know as a um, you know as received trait that survival as a social being was favored over surviving as a rational being so telling the person in charge they were wrong wasn't necessarily a in good your best idea interest. that's right, right. Yeah. but and so of course the, all of this is trying to work for different ways of trying to come to understand why people seem to be um, in our current culture not interested in whether something is actually really true or not mm. but instead they want to know how to, they're they're more or less acting as if how does it affect them socially which i think is kind of an interesting thing mm-hmm. and so then when you've got people who are interacting trying to figure out ethically what do you do in a particular situation um, I mean, I, I just think it's fascinating because they're they're going to learn from each other's experience, hopefully from positive experiences. That's not, right. Yeah. Not, not cutting corners mm-hmm. and, and juking stats. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite phrases from The Wire. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that doesn't come up in statistics classes, but it was like the idea of like you know being able to manufacture statistics that reinforce a particular idea. But uh, but I think that individual social thing is a it, the, the just it, I feel sometimes like we know so little about that about how are we you know the, it's like that uh, one of those games people play when they get high whether you're born social and you become an individual or you're born an individual and you become social mm. over time you know mm-hmm. which is the one that's actually more operative and it's probably some complex mess of the two but then you know and then for me as a media person how does how does media and parasocial relationships with fictional characters for example affect that you know what do you do when you're watching a a television program or or a movie and you find all the characters repulsive you know (laughs) how do you how do you associate yourself with what's going on there how do you make moral judgments based on that so i I don't know if maybe you don't maybe this isn't part of your couch potato thing but (laughs) But it, but it helps me get through some sometimes miserable storytelling with lots of really unhappy characters, you know, watching them go after each other. Anyway, so what do you think about the relationship between the social and the individual like that? I know it's a really broad question. Oh, yeah, no, I, and I, it's spot on exactly because it is something we have to grapple with. And I think it's a complex mix of both as it relates to ethical decision making. But certainly, um, so I follow a social intuitionist model, which says, yeah, uh, intuition is is first, but we are born into these tribes and that the the messages of our culture are going to be hugely influential as to which of those intuitions we pay attention to so like the sliders here on this keyboard it's like we we have a, a defined set of uh, moral intuitions about certain topics harm and justice and purity and so forth but then uh, our family's culture our society's culture the messages from media is going to um, pull back some of those it's going to uh, heighten others and then we get this rich cultural matrix, which uh, which hi- highlights some intuitions over others. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's an, I, the intuition is a very interesting thing to think about, and the the like what you were saying is sort of like the, I guess predispositions, or it would be maybe a way of thinking about it. Uh, you know how, and then you know for me again, what's interesting too through media is, is I think of all of media as kind of coding and languages. How does that affect that relationship between? 
sort of like ideas that don't have that expressive form and then when they become expressed in words how do you make choices about that um, specific word choices and and or if you're if you're making media how do you decide to use a particular dramatic frame or a particular set of images to communicate an idea that might be more of an in, intuitive sense of maybe aesthetics or you know what's pleasant or or desirable or something like that so cool well thank you ryan so much for thank joining for us today me. it was a pleasure to have you Ralph, you have anything to end on? I well, I did want to add one little thing. I wanted to, to recognize uh, one of our alumni, who uh, was just uh, named one of Times People of the Year, um, who was uh, um, a guest on our program not too long ago. So if you get a chance, you want to go back and listen to the episode with Chase Cook on. Yeah. Uh, because the newspaper staff that he was a part of was uh, one of the all the persons of the year this year from Time Magazine were people in journalism who are you know essentially defending our access to the truth and it's kind of a critical time it, yep. <laughs> for that sort of thing. So uh, Khashoggi was on the list, and then um, so were several other journalists too. Journalists are in greater danger now than they've ever been um, in everywhere, um, and so I just wanted to do a shout out to, to Chase and. Uh, recognize him for the work that he's done too so. yeah absolutely so check out that previous episode all right that's it thank you <laughs>